Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford, and welcome to Local Zero. So shortly, we'll be talking to someone who is central to the coalition government and who led on their flagship climate and energy policies, Lord Barker of Battle, formerly Greg Barker. Lord Barker was Minister of State for Energy and Climate Change under the coalition government before receiving his peerage in 2017. He played a pivotal role in the design and implementation of various major green initiatives, such as the Green Deal, the Feed-In Tariff and the Green Investment Bank. While some of these were more successful than others, we want to unpack how those initiatives were developed, the role that local has played in these policies, and of course, what Lord Barker thinks are the key challenges and opportunities facing a net zero transition. We'll discuss a range of UK government, community and local energy strategies and the current efforts to support retrofit and decarbonisation in various sectors, along with the more recent and turbulent Green Homes Grant. So as always, we want to hear from you. Please do tell us what you think of the podcast and ask questions or suggest topics for future episodes. Absolutely. Reviews and suggestions are always, always welcome. And you can also tweet us. For now, we are at energyrev underscore UK and use the hashtag local zero. But first, let us bring in our trusted steed, not a steed, that's the wrong bit. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ride you anywhere. But first, let us bring in our trusted wingman, um, our producer, the man behind the scenes, Fraser Stewart. How are you, Fraser? I'm good, Matthew. How's yourself? Very well, yes. And Becky joins us too. Uh, How are we? Yes. Well, just watching the rain pour down outside the window. But, you know, (laughs) other than that, doing pretty well. I love how these pods always begin with a comment on the weather, which is both very British, but also kind of very fitting given that we're recording this in Glasgow. And it could quite literally be any kind of weather. We had snow about seven or eight days ago. So Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a week before it actually goes out. So for the listeners just now. it's It was raining yeah. Yeah, at some point in the recent past. Let's be honest, it's Glasgow. It probably still will be next week. <laughs> well, well, I've, I've got my shorts on, on standby just in case. Um, so today we, we have a very special guest. We've got Lord uh, Barker who's a former uh, Minister of State for what was then the Department for Energy and Climate Change, now is Bayes um, uh, Department for Business, Energy, Industry and Skills. I think I've got that. No, sorry, uh, Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, although that acronym would have also worked. Um, So we're very very pleased to have him aboard. And uh, he sits on an an absolute mountain of, uh, of experience about how to support new and exciting energy projects, many of which have been local. So uh, I bet you're both excited to have them aboard. Absolutely. I think it's going to be an absolute bumper discussion today, isn't it? We're going to get, hopefully, going to get some real insight into some of the critical policies over the last decade that have helped to drive the community energy sector. Yeah, and I think for all three of us, he's contributed at least in some way to the policies that we all study, right? To the the sectors that we've worked in, the research that we've done. So it's a a big foundation for our work and work that a lot of people listening will have uh, have contributed to as well. I'm really excited about having him along. And and I think the the big reason is, uh, so Greg, uh, Lord Barker, um, took post in the early 2010s. 
And it was really at that point that many of the big policies that we know today that have supported energy policy, like the feed-in tariff, like the renewable heat incentive, um, other policies that have slipped by the wayside but made waves at the time, like the Green Deal, um, Lord Barker oversaw all of these. Um, and he was there, you know, around the table when these were being discussed. Also the Green Investment Bank. So I'm really hoping we can dig in a bit more about those and and why those decisions were made and how we felt they panned out. Absolutely. I mean, for me, this this whole kind of policy and political landscape can sometimes feel a little bit opaque at, at times. So, you know, whilst a lot of these policies have had very positive impacts, I mean, just look at the feed-in tariff and the you know, the massive uptake of small scale solar and, and other small scale forms of generation that it saw, you know, absolutely brilliant beyond what anyone would have expected at the time. Um, of course, some of the policies have been maybe less effective, either because they were stopped short for, for one reason or another, or because maybe there were some unintended consequences. And I think as we look forward to the coming, what have we got? 30 years, just shy of 30 years before we've got to start hitting our net zero targets. You know, policies like these are going to be absolutely critical to get us there and get us on that journey. And I'm going to come to Fraser in a minute, who's done some research on the feed-in tariff. But just before we do, on the feed-in tariff, it was so successful, it was almost a victim of its own success, that they actually had to step down the level of subsidy. And, and yes, it, it was in part because solar and other renewable techs were getting getting cheaper. But, you know, they did have to scale this back because the, the demand for this was just unforeseen. But Fraser, you've, you've done a bit of research looking at the distribution um, of these subsidies and just how equitable they were. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for the enormous benefit that the feed-in tariff had, not just for household solar, for community wind, for all for all kinds of stuff around uh, local and, and household level energy, it was also um, susceptible to to it produced massive inequalities. Right, middle class people, middle income people, higher income people could afford the time and the expense of actually making use of the feed-in tariff, which if you got onto in the early years of the feed-in tariff was worth quite a lot of money. You're locked into a, a generation tariff for a period of 20 years. You can make a lot of money on that. So there are some of these, like Becky mentioned earlier, these unintended consequences that actually, while the feed-in tariff did a lot of good moving forwards, do we have lessons beyond simply uptake and incentives that we need to think about, which I think is especially pertinent as we talk more about a just transition going forward? Well, absolutely. I mean, this really opens up a question around what do we mean by success? If we're judging success purely around uptake of renewables, then you just can't argue that the feed-in tariff was successful and, as you say, Matt, a victim of its own success. But I think as we start to deal with all of these different outcomes that we're trying to achieve. So we're not just talking about uptake of renewables and cutting carbon. You know, we're also talking about kind of social equity. And we're talking about other outcomes like, um, you know, are we thinking about issues related to biodiversity? Are we thinking about issues related to cleaner air? You know, what else are we also trying to achieve with these policies? And I think that's where this like this area starts to get so complicated around how these individual policies can can work or can work together in tandem with other policies to really deliver against the multiple objectives we're trying to meet. And I'm not convinced those policies in the 2010s were really uh, set against that that backdrop, Becky. I mean, you know, at the time there, we were talking about the energy trilemma. So we were talking about emissions, affordability and security. Now, Fraser and yourself have been pointing towards a just transition, but also wider co-benefits, biodiversity, air quality, the, the kind of things that are really on the agenda now. These, by my understanding, were not really framed against those objectives. It didn't mean they didn't have a positive impact in, in that regard. And I think the other thing to say about something like the feed-in tariff, it was successful on kind of two fronts. One, it was actually enabling individual households to bang it you know, solar panel on their roof. But it was also supporting local authorities and communities to set up neighbourhood-wide schemes to do this. So I feel it showed a way forward for the sector, what they could do if the money was there. The problem is the money isn't there anymore, that the scheme is has now been, been curtailed uh, or renewable heat incentive similarly next year. So, so yeah, sorry, Fraser, you wanted to jump in. So in terms of uh, the community side of things, that support is, and again, this relates to your research, Matt, that support simply is there's a massive black hole in support for those schemes going forward now in terms of how they're going to get off the ground for the for the benefit that they've had. But I think what seems to 
In terms of a, a modern application of this, the most recent incarnation in terms of the Green Homes Grant, the failures around that, I think it's, and I don't know if you guys have had thoughts on this, but I think it's interesting the sort of calamity that was the Green Homes Grant compared to something like the Fear and Tariff that was so successful. Why do you think what almost felt like a legacy policy from the Fear and Tariff, what do you think the reasons were for that? Why didn't it work out in the same way? Well, I think this just shows how many questions we have and how much we've got to talk about. So <laughs> let's get stuck into it and bring on our guest. Absolutely. Yeah, looking forward to it. Hello, I'm Greg Barker. I'm the executive chairman of the N Plus Group, which is the world's largest producer of low carbon aluminium and also the world's largest private sector hydropower business. To put that in context, the group that I lead generates more clean electricity from our hydropower assets than Britain does from all of its nuclear power stations put together. Put another way, the um, Hoover Dam generates about two gigawatts of electricity and we generate 16. So uh, I'm very proud at this point in, in the development of the global low carbon economy to be in a leadership role in a company that really is a key element of that effort. However, more germane to this podcast, from 2010 to 2014, I was the UK Minister of State for Energy and Climate Change in David Cameron's coalition government. And uh, from 2014 to 2015, I served as uh, Mr Cameron's climate envoy. And prior to 2010, I uh, was the opposition spokesman on, on energy and climate change from 2005 uh, through to uh, 2010. And for the four years prior to that, I served on the Environmental Audit Committee. So I had the real uh, privilege of actually working with a huge number of people, very talented and expert people in that period of opposition, when we really did start to think outside the box about how we could drive forward a climate-friendly uh, energy agenda and what we needed to do to make good on the on the legislation that we had helped pass in the Climate Change Act um, a couple of years before coming into government. Well, thank you and welcome, Lord Barker. It's an absolute pleasure to have you along. Um, that's an excellent overview of your involvement in the policy landscape, uh, and of course, you presided over some some really you know landmark policy changes during that period, many of which have uh, we've felt the full repercussions of over the past decade. Um, I just want to take a step back and for you to give uh, your reflections on what you think are some of the greatest challenges facing a net zero transition. And I guess to reflect upon whether we you think these are the same challenges that you were grappling with when you first took office. Uh, no, I think the challenges I faced when I took office were incredibly different. It's difficult to think it's, it was only 10 years ago. It seems like a different lifetime almost. We need to recognise just how far we have come. The fact that we are nearly halfway to meeting that net zero goal is extraordinary. I mean, I think what's the, we're now, what, 47% uh, decrease in carbon emissions since 1992. Now, when we passed that legislation, and I was involved in tabling the the amendment to the Climate Change Act that took it uh, from 60% reduction to 80% reduction, I think if we're really honest, it was a massive leap of faith. And we did it because we knew that was the right thing to do, not because we knew how to do it. And we really did put our trust in our ability to come up with new solutions and so to have made this progress now, and, it's, and those are bigger cuts than anyone else, any other major economy in the world, is extraordinary at a time when there has been growth in the economy. So it's a very different landscape. The other thing that's very different is when I became climate change minister, I was constantly, frequently still having arguments with people about whether or not climate change existed, whether or not it was actually something that we should be responding to as policymakers, whether or not actually the whole thing was a hoax or not. And I think that was the case up until I think the last time I did a BBC programme where up against a climate denial was probably 2016 or maybe even 2017. And now you'd be laughed out of, you know, off the TV or laughed off the radio if you, if you, if you started to have that conversation. But that was the context in which 
you know, four years after David Cameron and I had gone to the uh, Arctic and pointed at melting ice caps and patented huskies, um, that, that was the reality of the debate around climate change and climate policy in 2010. So if you were minister today, uh, what would be in, in your intray in terms of the, the big challenges that you're going to have to tackle? I mean, you've made very clear that, that times have changed. And in fact, some things have dramatically improved. Um, what do you expect uh, the current Minister of Energy and Climate Change will be tackling? What, what would be the primary issue? The, in a way, we tackled the low-hanging fruit, the, the easier to address issues. The energy transition, although it didn't seem easy at the time, has been a huge success. Um, it's not complete yet, but we can see the finishing line. It's, you don't have to be a, a great visionary to anticipate a world in which we will get to a totally clean grid. Um, however... While energy is the most important element in the decarbonisation of the um, economy, there are other elements of uh, big emitters of, of carbon that need to be tackled. And that, those are harder, I think. Um, you've got the hard-to-abate uh, industries that underpin our economy, um, which require further technological um, change. Um, and very substantial investment um, in order to make that change. And then you've got transport and you've got agriculture. Um, so I think you know, that it's a more diffuse challenge that the government faces now um, and the built environment, of course. Um, it's a more diffuse challenge that they face. And as such, there aren't just the, you know, the big uh, wins that we were offered um, in the energy sector. I mean, if you look at what the coalition go government did, and particularly my department, DEC, um, with the energy reforms of the early part of the last decade, um, this effectively created the offshore wind industry. And more than anything, the rollout of offshore wind at such scale and, at su and so incredibly efficiently at such low prices, that's been the biggest single game changer, I think, for the UK energy sector. Absolutely. So so some of the, the issues, as you say, we're maybe getting on top of, you, you mentioned the built environment there, uh, which obviously is a, a huge emitter. Um, and, and I think we'll dig into some of the, the questions uh, in relation to the, the policies that, that, that you um, were involved with there. Um, but I, I guess often I characterise this is a game of two halves. You know, the first half, as you say, the first half of decarbonisation, we're, we're there or thereabouts with delivery, and that was mostly about the power sector. Next half is about some of the sectors that you've, you've there mentioned around the built environment. These are much more consumer-based sectors and where we're going to have to now rely on the consumer making some tough choices. Is this something that you grappled with during your tenure as minister? Um, and... Or, or, or did you feel actually really you were able to deal primarily with big business and, and other key stakeholders rather than Mr. and Mrs. Jones at 22 Acacia Avenue? If I'm honest, I think uh, the answer for those consumer-facing issues really do f require regulation. Um, it does require a very concerted approach. You do need um, to work closely with the private sector because that's where the innovation comes from. That's where the, the great ideas come from that both create the products and also create the ideas that bring the consumer on board um, or at least bring the mass consumer on board. They're always going, you know, they're, you know when I was a minister, I was constantly meeting some you know, wonderful people who what you might call the hardcore enthusiasts, you know, which are a surprisingly large number, but they're still a minority of the population. Um, and the challenge is not to continue to please the, you know, the, 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 the green consumer, but to how do you bring on board the sceptical or disinterested consumer? And that's where you need to work with, work, work with, with business to, to make that happen. I want to pick up on some of these, um, these challenges that we're talking about, some of these different challenges, because we're looking at different sectors. And for me, a big element of this is that we don't have a level playing field anymore. With the huge advances that have been made in the power sector, for a lot of people that's happened behind closed doors. So not only are we requiring people to make changes in their everyday lives and 
be, I guess, more conscious in some of the decisions that they're taking. But we're also faced with an environment where some people are just more able to act than others, whether that's because they're in different financial circumstances, whether that's because they own versus rent their home um, and so on. So how do you think that policy, the policy might need to, policy landscape, sorry, might need to reflect this. So looking back at some of the policies that you'd implemented, do you, um, do you think that the policies that we need for the next stage or the second half, as we're referring to it, do you think they need to do something a little bit differently? Yes, absolutely. I mean, firstly, across the board with climate change, you have to recognise, I mean, I'm a conservative politician, I still believe in, in, you know, liberal conservative values. But um, I also recognise that when it comes to climate change, there is clear market failure, that you know, the market provides opportunities um, to create solutions. But left to its own devices, there is absolutely no guarantee that it will create those solutions um, in a way that is aligned to meeting the commitments that we know we need, we, we've made um, to try and keep global warming below um, two degrees. And, hope, and hopefully one and a half. Um, so in order to marshal the private sector um, behind clear policy goals that have been agreed globally and are reflected in Paris and hopefully will be reinforced at, in Glasgow, in order to do that, you need go- the, the government to step up and, and play a very strong role, um, thoughtfully um, um, and in, in a more sophisticated way. Uh, way than perhaps we've seen in the past. But nevertheless, there is a clear role for regulation. I think, you know, what's a good example of that? Good example of that is what the government is doing in transport with electric vehicles and announcing more than a decade ahead of time that they will nevertheless call time on the internal combustion engine. That um, is very radical. It's, provo- it's going to drive real change and it's going to drive, it's already driving massive investment and Technology innovation in the transport sector, in the in you know, across the board. So that's a really good example. Where's a bad example? It's I think probably the reluctance that I certainly encountered and wasn't able to get through in my time in the Department uh, of Energy and Climate Change, a commensurate level of ambition in the rented housing sector, um, or actually not. In fact, that's not quite true. Rent, you know, some of rented housing is actually very good. The biggest problem, um, for example, a lot of council-owned stock or our housing association-owned stock actually is at quite, relatively speaking, quite high levels. The biggest problem, it's in owner-occupied housing. So the the the, the house when we were uh, when I was in government that you found it hardest to reach with your policy tools was the five-bedroom or three-bedroom family house lived in by an elderly widow. Oh, wow. Um, without a mortgage, um, untouched by, you know, by finance. Um, and it was, you know, probably extremely cold. She couldn't really afford to eat, uh, heat it. Wouldn't, you know, didn't want to move out. Very suspicious of government schemes. Didn't want to incur debt. You know, it was very difficult to try and find the right tools that would engage those sorts of people. So I, th- I think on that, you know, there's there's a real suite of policies that you oversaw: feed-in tariff, renewable heat incentive, the Green Deal, Green Investment Bank. I could, could go on. Um, uh, many of these targeting some of the people you've just mentioned. Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the um, rental sector. You then mentioned the owner-occupier sector. Um, yeah, and some of these did encourage. I think, you know, earlier on, you've mentioned about bringing the, the consumers on board who may not otherwise have acted. So I think reflecting on some of these and feeding tariff, but also renewable heat incentive, Green Deal, which policies are you most proud of, but which do you maybe look back on with with, a, with some sense of regret and why? Yeah, well, firstly, the feed-in tariff and basically the decision that I made when I came in very quickly was to stretch it. So we ha- I came in and there was a very high tariff but a finite pot of money from the Treasury or a finite budget from the Treasury. And I very quickly realised that I was making a very small group of people doing very nicely and getting a sort of very uh, high return that was unwarranted. And what I wanted to do was get the maximum possible deployment um, from the the pot of money that I had available, knowing that the Treasury weren't going to make any more available at the time. We were were in an era of public spending cuts. And so I reformed the 
tariffs in order to bring in automatic digression. And basically, they had the net effect of stretching it as far as possible and, and, and creating incentives to drive down um, the cost while still keeping the consumer excited. And as a result, um, we ended up with over a million households um, with uh, uh, primarily solar uh, panels on their roofs and um, really did give rise to um, something I'd first written about in 2006 in the pamphlet I wrote called Power to the People, talking about decentralised energy and the, the um, exciting potential of decentralised technologies to, to engage consumers and to actually contribute to um, carbon reduction. Um, so feed-in tariffs, the, probably the thing that I'm single most um, proud of. Yeah. The other thing I was extremely proud of um, until the government flogged it um, was the Green Investment Bank um, because I was very involved in the creation of that. It, it, it was an idea that um, I had and, and developed with colleagues. Um, and I remember the Treasury tried to several times to kill it um, and uh, uh, Bayes, as it was then, I think, were not particularly keen. And we did, with thanks with support from my, co- my old colleague, uh, Chris Hoon, um, we did actually manage to ensured that we ended up with a, a uh, an institution. Um, and the, the Green Investment Bank, although it's still notionally around, it's not what it was, um, it did play a pivotal role in pump priming the uh, offshore wind sector in particular, um, as well as a number of other nascent low carbon um, sectors. So GIB was was a was a real success. Just wanted to to double check there as well. Um, I mean, you mentioned both of these policies have now, uh, well, one was a policy, one was a bank, um, but you know have 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 now been discontinued or privatised. Should these still be in place? I mean, the, the feed in tariff has has discontinued. The Green Investment Bank was privatised. There is there are versions of these in the smart export guarantee and for the feed-in tariff and also we're looking at a, you know a, a new infrastructure bank which may perform some of the same roles are you sad to see them go i w- was sad to see them go i mean there is a str- a strong case to say that there shouldn't be a feed-in tariff as it existed because the the reason that you had a feed-in tariff was to um subsidize a, what was a very high cost Technology. The cost of solar when I became minister was astronomical. It was the most expensive, um, broadly available um, distributed energy technology out there. Um, by the time I left office, it was almost it, it was well on the way to what it is now, which is pretty much the cheapest. And the advances in in uh, efficiency and the reductions in cost are breathtaking. A massive success. Um, and so you don't want to carry on subsidising something that doesn't require subsidy because you want to put it somewhere else. However, I do think that in in our in the haste to end subsidy for something that arguably no longer required it, they actually did away with a whole framework which could have been largely speaking um, cost neutral to the government, but did create a framework which gave people confidence to invest in um, their own home solar devices in particular, or their community solar devices, um, and gave a certainty to the income and, that they were going to get when buying you know, what can be quite expensive bits of kit. And I think you know, the, scheme that, the schemes such as they are that replaced it don't have the same attractiveness to the broader consumer, what we were talking about earlier, you know, that sceptical consumer that did pile into um, to, uh, the, the, the solar boom. Um, we, we've kind of lost that. We've lost that excitement, which I think is a real shame. So I think there is definitely a case to reboot um, the decentralised energy um, uh, campaign that I uh, ran when I was minister. And, and, to our, and we need ministers to articulate that more, more clearly. Um, and I don't think that anyone can um, can argue with you around the success of the feed-in tariffs. I mean, just looking at the the rate of uptake, and and I remember seeing graphs showing sort of the best predicted values and how you just saw such a, a massive increase even on what those predictions were. Yeah. However, there's been a lot of academic analysis around some of the non carbon related outcomes of that. So a lot of work that's looked at how in some cases these policy incentives can exacerbate inequalities in the sense that a lot of people are not able to 
access um, the feed-in tariff. So whether it's because they they do not have the the ability because they're a renter or sometimes just the, the lack of time, know-how or upfront capital. What has helped um, with that is the community schemes that you were just talking about. Absolutely, yeah. And so clearly that that has a massive kind of role to play. And so I'm just wondering, you know, we've been talking about policies and what national government needs to do moving forward. Where do you see the role of local government or community groups in driving this agenda forward? So working with national government. I mean, we have to be clear that when I when I first got involved um, in this agenda, there were you know there was very little deployment of renewables anywhere across the board. It was still very much a, a specialist technology that didn't that wasn't supplying the grid with any meaningful amounts of electricity. Now that's completely changed. The ability at this stage of the game for community renewables to make a meaningful difference to the total supply of clean electricity to the grid is relatively small and certainly probably disproportionate to the amount of political time and policy effort that would be required to really drive that agenda forward. But what I was also, and I think which is your question alluded to, but I was also aware that unlike other forms of electricity generation, there was something very special about community energy that that produced much more than just electricity. It did act as a catalyst for an interest, not just in the generation of electricity from solar or from a wind turbine or or even a, a sort of CHP, but also once you got communities engaged doing that, they then went on to want to do more things. They then got interested in in insulation and energy efficiency more broadly. Um, they then got interested in the whole sustainability agenda. They then got into you know, thinking about how do they make their community more sustainable in, every, in, in, in all senses of the word. Um, so it, it's difficult to make the argument to a, you know, a narrowly defined department that's just about creating clean electricity that actually focusing on community energy is going to make a meaningful difference rather than putting all your efforts into getting another you know, three gig, you know, um, three megawatt or five megawatt wind turbine put out at sea. Um, but the value that you get, the excitement and the enthusiasm and the with with community is wonderful. And micro hydro was another thing I was very excited about. Yeah, and it it, it strikes me that you actually do feel quite passionately about this. And I I certainly got that impression as you presided over as as, as minister that you understood the value of community energy. I hope so. I certainly got it in my, in my, whether I got it right is another thing, but I got it. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and, and, and of course we'll, we'll cover off uh, some of the other policies, but what I find interesting is after 2015, community energy policy went very quiet. So what I'm interested in is in this coalition government, why was community energy on the table and how did it fit into the broader agenda of government at the time? I mean, 2010, we're looking at questions uh, and, and policies around big society, relatively small state. But you, you've you've mentioned also there about, I think, broader issues around net zero and trying to capture that passion and, and, and energy that people have to do something meaningful for the climate agenda. So why was it a key policy for energy in the early 2010s? And under Theresa May's government, why, why maybe did it sort of fall off the, the, the agenda? I think um, for the very practical reason that I sort of alluded to in my introduction, I was very fortunate in that I had a long run in um, into going into government so that I had um, nearly 10 years. But if you combine my time on the Environmental Audit Committee when I started thinking about these issues um, and then as shadow spokesman, to write pamphlets, to talk to people, to really get clear in my mind what I wanted to do, what my agenda was. That's not typically how the British political system, regardless of party, works. I mean, you know, this weekend, the Labour Party were having a reshuffle and someone that was doing you know, health last week is now doing pensions or somebody that was doing you know, environment uh, last week is now you know, sorting out you know, the Treasury, you know, the, 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 this sort of musical chairs in British politics is something that you know, has many advantages. And, but it does mean that when somebody suddenly gets landed with a brief, they don't bring with it necessarily the same 
Well, maybe they, they may well bring passion, but they certainly don't bring with the same breadth of experience and understanding of that than, than somebody that's spent several years really learning, you know, teaching themselves into the job. And that's why, for me, that was a priority, because it wasn't a pr- real priority of the department. Within the civil service, there are a lot of experts and very committed individuals on the civil service side, but it's not ultimately their job to make policy and set priorities. And one of the things that was great about working at the Department of Energy and Climate Change is it did have, it did have a sense of mission. It was a, you know, what we used to call a missionary department, you know, rather like um, DFID was. Um, the people who made a positive choice to go and work there typically really were inspired by the agenda as opposed to you know, other departments that maybe weren't quite so like that. And if, if I can come on to the next question, which points to maybe one of the policies which, which was more difficult to deliver, the Green Deal, yeah, I think is something that you've talked about before. A fascinating interview with the Institute for Government a, a few years back where you spoke quite candidly about that and I thought very uh, informatively. I just wanted to get a sense of the lessons you think we learned through the Green Deal and what you would be recommending government to do in terms of next steps. And I just wanted to point to one particular part of this was, um, I think in your interview to the IFG, you said what we really should have done or or what you wanted to do was do a street by street, neighbourhood by neighbourhood basis, which was focused on some of the least efficient and most vulnerable homes and actually shrink the free market part of that. Is that something you still stand by now? And, and, and if so, you know, what should government be doing now? Broadly speaking, yes, it is. The thing that I also worked out with the Green Deal is that it's the consumer experience that really mattered. And that's quite a difficult thing to guarantee in a uniform way. So I remember British Gas telling me that they did an extensive trial of the Green Deal on a street-by-street basis in Plymouth, I think it was. And they'd had very poor take-up and they were offering heavily discounted, almost free um, insulation and solid wall and sort of makeovers for, you know, uh, energy efficiency makeovers for the uh, 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 whole community with uh, primarily um, semi-detached and mostly terraced housing. And they'd had very, very poor take-up this was a real sort of blow. And they said, as a result, we're just not going to get behind this. We're not going to offer it. You know, we, were not, we will offer it, but it's not something that we can really put our shoulder to. Um, and then I went to another uh, ministerial visit in the Midlands, and there was a much smaller company that was operating a similar street-by-street proposition. And they were getting like 92% take-up. And the reason was the quality of what they were offering. They, you know, the, the company in the Midlands was offering it very much from a home improvement angle and it looked nice and it added to the visual as well as the thermal value of the home. Whereas the, you know, the British gas rollout made everything look like it was just being dropped from East Germany. You know, they, they sort of like specialised in getting rid of the local vernacular architecture and covering up people's particular foibles. And and so the actual implementation of a street-by-street rollout is really crucial. So you could have two policies, the same policy, but delivered differently and get very different outcomes. So that's challenging. So that is interesting because the, the Green Home Grants, which, you know, has has had significant problems in terms of the consumer household offering, free grants, to upgrade the efficiency of a building between five and ten thousand pounds, and that's had such problems that they've suspended that. However, the money from that has been um, transferred into the local authority-led part of that scheme, the more street by street, neighbourhood by neighbourhood approach managed locally by by local authorities, and that seems to map quite clearly onto your experiences or hopes for what the Green Deal might have delivered on. So. Do we think history is repeating itself a little bit here? Yeah, I, I, I think local authorities are the absolute key partner in this. And again, you get good, good authorities and bad authorities. But where you get a good authority that is in tune with its residents and operates services efficiently, it's a, that I think is very hard to beat, particularly when they've got a good private sector partner with them. Um, the other thing, though, that we didn't really appreciate in designing the Green Deal was the resistance that there would be in the private sector to performing small jobs on 
houses. So the part of, one of the reasons we have to do street by street is to get critical mass because you know say you know, say you're going to spend ten thousand pounds on a series of installations on a property. The reality is very few firms can offer the whole suite of installations that they need. I mean, some are electrical, some are, you know, consumer electrical, some are, you know, like, you know, well, let's fit these gadgets to your fridge so it can become a smart fridge, as opposed to let's, um, you know, rewire part of the um, the fabric of, of the house so you can take um, storage heaters or, or, or energy um, ground source or air source heat pumps or something. Um, that would be a very different provider to someone that's going to fit in a double glazing, who's a very, who's probably a different person that would come and fiddle about in your loft and, in, and, and you know, top up your lagging, which is a different person that would come and fill your cavity wall. And what we realised is the call-out cost of these different trades was such that it didn't make huge economic sense to a lot of big firms. And it was quite difficult to package it together in a way that, was really, you know, and exciting to them. And that was a challenge. There's there's value associated with that, but the headache that each house is different, each householder and family and occupant is different. Yeah. But for me, there seems to be some excitement and value in in going neighborhood by neighborhood, street by street, where people start chatting, oh, you know, this scheme is happening. Oh, uh, you know, next door but one have had it done. Well, we, you know, and, and, and that seems, it feels like we never got to that point or, or have, haven't yet. No, I mean, we had lots of successful examples of that, little pockets where it happened. But the reality is we didn't get sort of, what do they call it, exit velocity. You know, we never actually really got past, that's a great trial scheme, that's a super example, and, it, it, and we got liftoff. One of, I tell you one of the mistakes that I would fix now, if, I, if it were in my power to, mistake, to fix, was to have harnessed the excitement that there was around feed-in tariffs with the Green Deal. Unfortunately, out of an abundance of caution, we made it very difficult for people to borrow money against the feed-in tariff revenue. So to sort of you know, take that income that they were getting from their solar panels and then actually offset that against, uh, put that, buy those with the Green Deal and use the sort of the profit on that to um, invest in other things. Because we, you know, you've got, this was in the aftermath of the financial crisis and we were very worried about piling you know, consumer credit onto people or piling um, debt onto the national balance sheet. And I think in hindsight, that was wrong. We should have been bolder. And I think if you can find one lead technology or one lead improvement like solar that has cut through to the general consumer, and then you can harness onto that all of the other improvements that are less obvious but equally important if you're going to get to that net zero target. That's what we need to do. But I think it has to be done in a in a street-by-street street framework and in partnership with local authorities. I feel like we've got a real opportunity and a catalyst for action with COP26 coming to Glasgow later this year. Have you been dedicating uh, much thought to that? Particularly, we're interested in hearing about what some of your hopes and dreams are for that, but also what are some of your fears as well? Well, my biggest fear is that it won't happen at all because of COVID and that it will end up being some terrible sort of, you know, massive Zoom event, which, you know, I just won't have, won't have the same impact. Um, so in actual fact, if we are, if if there was a possibility of it, which there must be, I guess, because no one can be certain that it, that, um, it could be scaled back because of COVID, personally, I would defer it, you know, for a few more months rather than have a sort of less impactful online event. Now, there probably is going to have to be some sort of hybrid uh, solution. But my biggest fear is that it will, out of concerns for COVID, that you will lose that sense of excitement and, and impetus, which really is important in delivering outcomes in the negotiating room. I mean, I remember being in Cancun in Mexico, which was the COP that came after the failure of Copenhagen. And really, it was the, if that COP had failed with an, um, it would have, or failed to reach conclusion, I think that it could have been the death knoll of the whole UNFCCC process, and we would have never have got to Paris. And I just remember the sheer electricity in this huge plenary hall with a huge number of young people and people from Friends of the Earth and other civil society actors 
cheering um, on the leadership of the uh, UN and um, giving sort of, um, you know, tremendous support to all the countries that were standing up and making commitments like the UK. And we're also making their very their, their uh, views known very clearly when countries like Venezuela, I think it was Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and, and others were, were trying to derail the process back then. The fact that there were the human dimension to those negotiations really did push the tiller in the right direction. So I'm a great believer in personal interaction on these important um, policy occasions. So I really hope that my biggest fear is that COP won't will will be you know diluted by going on online. Do you think it could and should matter to your, every person on the on the street? Oh God, yes, absolutely. I mean, of of course. It should matter, but will it? And will it have that same cut through that you mentioned before? You know, when we look at things like the Olympic Games in 2012, it's obviously a very different type of event, but could it have that kind of impact on the ground where communities are running fringe events and and, and people sort of look back on this as a turning point in the public consciousness about climate change and the action they need to take? Yeah, I mean, I think pre-COVID, that is definitely what we should have been aiming for and trying to deliver, you know, not just you know, a set of really quite technical and incomprehensible at times um, negotiations on the, uh, on the details of the UNFCCC work streams, but also use it as an occasion to draw in a far, far wider group of stakeholders and communities on issues like sustainability and renewable energy and the whole excitement uh, that there is around the opportunities being created by the switch to a low carbon economy, which was you know, far too many to just reel off. So I think, you know, I, you're absolutely right. That is an opportunity. The big challenge is, can we create that opportunity in, you know, in COVID where, you know, only six house, you know, six people can meet indoors or, you know, it's, it's, it, uh, it, it depends how quickly the restrictions really unwind and how, how people can organise themselves. Yeah, of course. But that's the opportunity. If we can spring out of COVID and go straight into COP, with a sense of enthusiasm and ambition that is infectious. If we can do that, if we can make a determination to act on climate infectious, then anything's possible. Excellent. Well, here's to hoping for that kind of event. And and thank you very much for your time today, Lord Barker. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. And uh, good luck with the rest of the series. And uh, perhaps I'll see you in Glasgow. Now for the part of the show that we've all been waiting for, Future or Fiction. For the uninitiated, Future or Fiction is a game where I present our lovely hosts with a new technological innovation and they have to decide if it's real, i.e. they think it's the future, or if I've just pulled it out my backside. And today, the invention is called... A Bug's Life. That is A Bug's Life. I feel this is a movie that I've seen. It definitely is. It definitely is. I can also see a row of Pixar films in on, on your uh, bookshelf just behind you as well. So yeah, that's it. You guys are the parents of young children. I have no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> so we all know that plastic waste and recycling is a huge problem faced all over the world that can be tricky business to keep on top of. However, scientists have come up with a novel solution that can help break down stubborn plastics and materials in the form of bioengineered bugs. These tiny bugs effectively eat plastic, allowing us to fully recycle plastic bottles and the like. Do we think it's the future or do we think it's fiction? Becky, coming to you first. Oh, so I'm I'm kind of so torn here. I feel like this is such a so exciting. I can't imagine where in your mind you dreamt that up. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I'm kind of waiting to hear what Matt says because because whatever I say is wrong. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you. So it's a cunning it's a cunning ploy. Yeah, I know nothing about this sort of concept you know I I was kind of okay with the engineering based ones but you've totally thrown me this week Fraser with something (laughs) like bio like biological I mean I didn't even study biology at um at school so well it's I think your your sort of educational background is gonna be more helpful to to this one than a geography (laughs) so so you know I'm really I'm fumbling in the dark here um I, I think um I'm sure I've heard about this but I'm not the bit I'm not convinced by is the kind of you know engineered 
part that somebody's kind of developed these bugs through some kind of weird Frankenstein experiment in a lab somewhere. And if they have, I'm genuinely concerned about that because <laughs> you know, just start start coming out for us. They're going to be eating through our kids' toys. Yeah, yes, yeah, just yeah. You're just like I'm sure I left my coffee flasks around here somewhere. <laughs> um, but. I don't really know. I mean, of course, plastics persist for many decades, hundreds, you know, or even hundreds of years. So I don't think nature has the answer. So I am conflicted. I'm going to wait for Becky to make a move. Oh. <laughs> well, I feel like, you know, like worms are great with our compost. So why can't bugs do plastic? I mean, I like the idea of this. I feel like if somebody asked me to invest in this, I would want to. So I'm going to go with future. Okay. So, so Becky, you're, you're locking in future. I am, yeah. Matt? Oh, it's difficult because I, I think this stuff exists. I just don't know whether it's natural or not. And there's little weasel words you've got in there. I'm <laughs> I'm going to bank safe and go with Becky on this one, I think. Oh, God. I think it does exist because I have heard of them. Yeah, breaking them down. So future. Okay. Becky, Matt's going future. Becky, do you now want to change your answer? <laughs> <laughs> No, I won't change my mind. I won't change my mind. I'll that's, stick with future. Yeah, it's very noble of you, that Becky. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's two futures. The answer is... The future. Yeah. It's broken your losing streak. <laughs> yes, 2021's really coming alive today, yeah. <laughs> Scientists in Japan have discovered and developed a super enzyme from bacteria that have evolved to eat plastic, allowing for more effective and complete recycling. The super enzymes can also break down things like cotton, which could allow for recycling of clothes and other materials as well. That sounds like there could be a few wardrobe malfunctions on the back of that as well. So, <laughs> um, yes, I'm even more worried about these now. No, well, they do say that, you know, bacteria, it's either going to be bacteria or a virus that takes over the world and wipes us out completely the virus has had its uh, try hasn't it the last few years so bring on the bacteria no it's bacteria still yeah yes yeah so definite market application but very concerning <laughs> thank you fraser great stuff oh well we've managed to break matt's losing streak so quite excited to see what you bring us in the next episode fraser but for now i think all we've got left to do is to say thank you again to our wonderful guests and thank you to everybody for listening uh, remember to check us out on uh, twitter use our handle at energyrev underscore uk and the hashtag local zero uh, but for now bye see you soon bye 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 Produced by Bespoken Media.